right, we're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 9 through 11 this morning. Did everyone get paper? I, I told you last week, if you have a book, you won't need a paper. And then today, you won't need a book, but you'll need a paper. Uh, so, so I hope everyone got an outline. Only because the book gives a quick overview of 9 through 11, and we're giving a more detailed outline of Romans 9 through 11. Because these three chapters, um, one theologian says is like the prickles on a porcupine. There's so many issues that in, in these three chapters. And so many people shy away from these three chapters. Uh, it's almost like Romans has the first eight chapters, and then from chapter 12 on to the end of the book. Uh, and then these kind of just stand by themselves. But the key to interpreting and understanding Romans 9, 10, and 11 is to put it in the context of the whole book and to not make it say more than it says and to draw out of it what Paul intended in these three verses as it fits with the whole of the book of Romans. And as we said, just to catch us up, the whole of the book of Romans is about the revealing of the righteousness of God to Jew and Gentile alike. And the revealing of the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's not through law-keeping as the Jews tried. It's not through being inherently good or trying to find good religion on your own like those in the pagan world would do. But it is about faith in Jesus Christ. And it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that righteousness, the true righteousness of God is revealed. And how the Gentiles are included in the body of Christ. How the promises were made to Israel, but now the gospel, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Gentiles that the two would become one through faith in Jesus Christ. And then the outworking, chapters 12 on, is the outworking of how practically do Jews and Gentiles live out this faith together. So when we set that first as the whole overtone of the book of Romans, it reveals the righteousness of God by faith alone. It's to the Jew and the Gentile who will become together in one body by faith and how they live out that faith we began to see Romans 9 through 11, the way it's just properly viewed. Um, that being said, there is a lot of confusion and there's a lot of interpretations. Uh, there's probably as many interpretations of Romans 9, 10, and 11 as there are people who have an opinion about Romans 9, 10, and 11 because I have read them all this past week. And uh, down throughout, depends on what age you live in church history, depending on how they interpreted, depending on what school of theology they came from, depending on how is depends on how they interpret the book of Romans. So there's just a lot of questions about Romans 9, 10, and 11. So the first thing we want to do, we want to interpret it in light of the whole of the book of Romans. And secondly, we don't want to make it say more than it says. We don't want to read into it a bunch of things that may or may not be there. So with that said, let's jump into Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, on our paper, the, there's four major issues that are addressed throughout this uh, three chapters in the book of Romans. 
One of the issues, and these are not necessarily in order, they're kind of in order, but they can go in and out. The first issue that we see is the issue of predestination and election. If you come from what is called a more Reformed background or a more Calvinistic background, you love Romans chapter 9. It's almost the only, other, it's almost the only chapter in the Bible uh, if you come from a Calvinistic background because their whole theology is based upon the principles that they see in Romans chapter 9 as it relates to the election of individuals for their eternal destinies. Uh, and of course, on the other side of Calvinism, we have the thoughts of Arminianism, which is directly opposed to the issues of predestination and election. We'll talk more on that in a moment. But that is a crucial issue that is taken up in these chapters. The next issue is the issue of the true Israel. Who are the true Israelites as it relates to the gospel? That is discussed in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Another issue in Romans 9, 10, and 11 deals with God's faithfulness to His Word as it relates to Israel and as it relates to the Gentiles. Is God faithful to His Word? Does God's Word, does God's promises fail? That is a big question that we ask in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And then a fourth issue that we'll talk about today is the issue of the salvation of Israel. How does salvation come to Israel? Who does salvation come to in Israel? By what means does salvation come to Israel? So these are four major issues that have caused a lot of division uh, over the years. And really, you can make, as I was going through Romans 9 to 11, you can make it as simple or as complicated as you want to. And sometimes the more you read it, the more complicated it becomes. Uh, and the more you read about it, the more complicated it becomes. So we, I want to investigate these three chapters today, but I also want to keep the main focus the main focus and not get lost into all these little uh, side roads that you can get lost in when it comes to Romans chapter 9 through 11. So let's, let's begin Romans chapter 9. Again, we're continuing the theme. This is a letter. It's not intended to take the first eight chapters and then separate the next three chapters and then separate the final chapters of the book. It's all one letter. So we're continuing this discussion on the righteousness of God and how the righteousness of God is revealed and who the righteousness of God comes through. So the first five verses of Romans chapter 9 um, set the tone for this section of Scripture that we're going to look at. The first five verses you see, uh, the overall theme of Romans chapter 9 is God chooses to show mercy to the Gentiles. So I could just say Romans chapter 9 is about God choosing to show mercy to the Gentiles. Let's go on to chapter 10 uh, because we want to keep the main thing the main thing. And that is the main theme that Paul's discussing here uh, in this portion of Scripture. God chooses sovereignly to show mercy to a group of people called the Gentiles who before he had shown mercy to his covenant people Israel. Now he chooses to show mercy to Gentiles. So the first five verses of Romans chapter 9, this is almost a lament that Paul begins with. You can hear the heaviness in his heart as he says, as his sorrow is for Israel. 
So we begin reading in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So there you see Paul's feelings on, on the matter. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, or from his own flesh, the people of Israel. So he says, the Israel I was born into, ethnic Israel, he says, I have a lot of sorrow in my heart for them, and I wish I could be cursed and cut off myself if it means they are saved. So he starts with this lament over how his very own people need to know this righteousness that he is speaking of. And then he goes into uh, just a little bit about Israel through verse 5. The next section, looking in verse number 6 through verse number 29, this is the question of God's faithfulness and God's purpose. This is the question of God's faithfulness and God's purpose. If you look in verse number 6, he says, It is not as though God's word has failed. So again, that's the issue, the faithfulness of God. Is God faithful to what he promised or has God's word failed? Now he's picking up on a theme that he left off earlier. So hold your place there and look back to Romans chapter 3. Look back to Romans chapter 3. So he kind of introduces this idea here of God's promises and God's word to Israel in chapter 3, but he leaves it off there and picks it back up in chapter 9. So in Romans chapter 3, he echoes back, and let's begin reading um, in verse number 1. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. He says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? He said, Much in every way. First of all, the Jews had been entrusted with the very words of God. He said, So the important thing about being a Jew is that God spoke to them. God gave them his word. God gave them his covenants. God gave them his promises. Then he asked the question in verse number three of Romans chapter three, what if some were unfaithful? What if some of the Jews were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Will God become unfaithful to them now that they have become unfaithful to God? And he says, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you are judged. He says in verse 5, But if our unrighteousness brings out God's unrighteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And he says, certainly not. So the question that he begins to pose in chapter 3 is, if Israel is unfaithful, will that cause God to be unfaithful to them as far as the promises and the word that he makes. And he says there's certainly not, and he continues speaking on, but he really picks up this theme back here in Romans chapter 9. So back here in Romans chapter 9, verse number 6, he echoes back, and he says, it's not as though God's word has failed. Has God's word, has God's promises failed Israel? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. One major theological idea out in the world today is that God, and we hear it without even thinking about it, but it's, it's the thought that God had set Israel aside at the cross when they rejected Jesus. 
that God set them aside, and now he's working through the church, primarily of Gentiles, you know, will one day work through Israel again and, and all of this. But I asked the question, did God set Israel aside at the cross and start fulfilling his promises to the, you know, through the Gentiles? The answer is no. And the answer is no because on the day of Pentecost, after the cross, there's thousands of Jews there. And Peter stands up and he says, this is that which God spoke to us through the prophet Joel. God didn't set them aside. It was through the cross that God was fulfilling his promises that he made to Israel. So has God's word failed them? Absolutely not. Because the gospel first went to them. And also, Paul gives us the reason. So back in verse 6, he says, Has God's word failed? Even though, as he mentioned in chapter 3, even though some Jews were unfaithful, has God's word failed? He says no. And here's why he says no. Look in verse number 6 of Romans 9, the second part. For not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Now that is a mouthful. Not all those who are ethnic Jews who were born into Judaism are a part of Israel, he says. Now that's a big statement that he makes, but yet he backs it up. So he says, not all those who are part of Israel by flesh or ethnic Israel are part of Israel by faith. Israel's history was, was just riddled with disobedience. It was riddled with them turning their back on God, with them chasing after other gods, and God having to bring them under judgment and call them back to himself. But yet, there was always those who were faithful. There was always a small group who stayed faithful to God. So has God's word failed Israel? No. Has some rejected the gospel? Yes. But does that mean God stopped fulfilling his promises to them? No. And he says that not all who are Israel by the flesh are part of Israel by faith. And he writes about this in other scriptures, and we have them here on your paper. In Romans chapter 2, we read this last week. For, one is, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, or is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, not of the flesh, by the spirit, not of the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul says in Romans 2, he's not a Jew that's just one that's been circumcised outwardly, but one who's been circumcised in the heart. That's who a true Jew is. That's who a true person of God is. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus? And he's a teacher of the law of Judaism. And he says, Jesus, we know you're sent from God and you do these great things and God is with you. And Jesus looks at him and he says, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you must be born again. He says, I know you were born a Jew, but that doesn't guarantee that you're a part of my kingdom. I know you're a teacher of the law, but that doesn't guarantee that you're a part of my kingdom. You must be born again, have a new birth, a birth from the Spirit of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For we, speaking to the Philippians, who were Gentiles primarily, and Jews involved, but we, those who follow Christ, we are the true circumcision. Not like the Jews who are persecuting the Christians, but we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Galatians 3.29, he says to these Galatian believers, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, Abraham's offspring, and heirs according to the promise. So, So who's the true offspring of Abraham? It's those who by faith. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and they said, we, we have favor with God because we're children of Abraham. And he said, God can make these stones children of Abraham. If you reject me, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting the one who God sent through Abraham. So if you're a Christ and you're Abraham's seed. In Galatians 4, he speaks to those. He says, now you brothers, and we... You can read the whole passage, we didn't have time, but the whole passage there. Now you, brothers, speaking again to the Galatian believers and the, and the uh, Jews who are believers at the churches in Galatia. You are like Isaac, you are the children of promise. So Paul draws a distinction. His heart is for those ethnic Jews, his brothers in the flesh, because they, are, they have not come over to be part of Israel by faith and therefore are not a part of the promises that God is doing through Jesus Christ, and he has sorrow in his heart. But he's addressing who's, who's the true Israel, because the true Israel has always been a people of faith. And he's going to talk more about that. But to give examples of this, because they are not all Israel, who were descended from Israel, he gives two examples of this. In verse number 7 through 9, he gives the example of Isaac and Ishmael, how they were both children of Abraham. They were both physically born, and Abraham was their father. But only one of them was the child of promise, and the other was born after the flesh. Again, showing that not all who are born after the flesh are part of the children of promise. Then he uses Jacob and Esau in verses 10 through 13. In the same way, verse number 10 says, Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by the works of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. So he's saying that God sovereignly chose to give his promise through Isaac's seed, not Ishmael. That God chose Jacob to fulfill his promises for Israel through, not through Esau. So even though they were both born of Rebekah, one was a child of promise, one was not. Just because they were both born of Abraham... One was a child of promise, one was one after the flesh. So he's given this examples of they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That Israel is a people of faith. And then in verse 14, because God chose Isaac and Jacob as his people to fulfill his promises through, and not Ishmael, Esau, is there injustice in God? Is God wrong for choosing to fulfill his promises through, through Isaac and not Ishmael? No. Because God can choose who he wills. And God chose Isaac and Jacob to fulfill his promises of his chosen people, Israel, in the Old Testament. So verses 15 through 18 take up the question, does that, or takes up the idea that God does what he does, and he uses who he uses to fulfill his purposes. 
God can have mercy on who he wants to have mercy on. And in this case, he's making the point, God wants to have mercy upon the Gentiles. God wants to have mercy upon the Gentiles. So when he speaks here, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but when he speaks here of Jacob and Esau, he's not just speaking of individuals. Those individuals are representative of people groups. When he speaks of, 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 of Jacob and Esau, of Isaac and Ishmael, he's speaking there representative of people groups and how God used them to work out his purposes in the nation of Israel, to show his mercy to Israel. But now God's choosing to show his mercy to the Gentiles. So just as God used Pharaoh, and then he gives an example of, of Pharaoh, just as God used Pharaoh and, and hardened his heart. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Just because he didn't want him to be saved? No. God hardened Pharaoh's heart to free and deliver and save the people of Israel out of captivity. God had a purpose, and his purpose was to bring salvation to his people, his nation. Just as God used Pharaoh in his hard heart to free and deliver Israel, God can use Israel's rejection and their rebellion to free and deliver or to save the Gentiles. So basically he's saying God can do what he wants to show mercy to the Gentiles. And God is using Israel's rejection and their rebellion because many have rejected. But yet God's using that rejection to bring about salvation to all the Gentile people. So God works through human rebellion to bring out a more glorious work. All he's doing is talking about how God has set up to show his mercy to the Gentiles through the rejection of many of the Jewish people according to the flesh. In verses 19 through 24, he talks about how he uses Israel's rejection and through judgment on them, he brings Gentiles into glory. In verse number 19, uh, I'll read here in Romans 9, 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, through choosing to show his wrath and make his power known with great patience to the objects of wrath prepared for destruction, what if he did this to make his riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews but from the Gentiles? He says that in verse number 24. So again, this whole issue that he's talking about of predestination and election and using Ishmael or using Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau and hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's all about how through the Jews' disobedience and through their judgment by rejecting Christ, God would include the Gentiles and show them mercy. Why? Because he wanted to. Because God wanted to show his mercy to Gentiles as well as Jews who would believe and receive the promise of God. That's what chapter 9 is speaking of. So in, chapters, or in verse 25 and 26, we see on our paper, this was God's plan all along. And he even spoke it through the prophets. So 
Paul goes back to Hosea chapter 2 and chapter 1. He goes back to Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 1-9 to show that this was God's plan to include Gentiles all along. This wasn't a plan B. It wasn't, oops, Israel rejected me. I have to find some other people. That's not what it was. It was God's plan all along to bring salvation to Israel and to bring salvation to Gentiles and bring them together as one people of God. So in verses 30, that should be 32, the conclusion of the matter, Israel rejected God and His righteousness by not coming to Him through faith and insisting on earning righteousness through law-keeping, which they failed at. That was the stumbling stone. Therefore, through their rejection and the subsequent judgment, the Gentiles without the law have obtained the righteousness of God because of their faith and have been fully included in the covenant people and the promises of God. This was all by God's purpose and plan from the beginning. So we see the whole chapter has to do that was God unfaithful to His word to Israel? No. God was faithful to His word for, to Israel, and He was faithful to His word to bring in the Gentiles. And it's all about how He predestined Gentiles to receive mercy. That's what the chapter is about. And I added kind of a tongue-in-cheek, kind of a tongue-in-cheek sentence in there, just to rile up some people that I know, not in here, but friends of mine, pastor friends, I put, and somewhere in here, somehow, we got Calvinism. Somewhere, somehow, in this chapter of God bringing in the Gentiles using the hardening and the rejection of Israel, and by bringing in the Gentiles, somehow we got the idea of Calvinism, that God has pre-selected every individual on the planet to either be saved, and they have no choice about it, or to be lost and they have no choice about it. And that God has predestined individuals to either heaven or hell, and they have no choice in the matter. Um, and predestination, election. I don't see it in here. I have, I have great pastor friends, and there's whole denominations and other smart theologians that, has, that see it in this chapter clearly. I don't see it in this chapter clearly. And so... About predestination, I put a little side note in here. Did God predestine certain people, individuals, to salvation, heaven, while other people had no choice? Although predestination is both a biblical term and a biblical concept, it does not mean, in my humble opinion, and I'm not the smartest person on the planet or the brightest light in the pack of bulbs, but... It does not mean that God pre-selected some individuals to be saved and left others with no chance to believe. The entire meaning of predestination is summed up in one verse, and that's in verse number 30. Look in chapter 9, verse 30 with me. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. God predestined that the Gentiles who did not chase after God's righteousness would be able to obtain God's righteousness by faith. Paul is not speaking of the selection of individuals. Instead, predestination is about God's controversial move to include the Gentiles in the gospel invitation. We believe that God chose to include the Gentiles 
as a whole, and individuals can opt out. Just as God chose Israel, and individuals can opt out by their own free will. Hence, our denomination, free will, Baptist. God included us and chose us and predestined us, but individuals can opt out. Yes, in Romans chapter 9, God does use individuals as examples. He uses Isaac and Ishmael. He uses Jacob and Esau. But again, those are representative of people groups, not representative of every individual on the planet that has ever lived, who the majority of those would end up in hell. So three out of four people God selected to go to hell and they have no choice. That is not taught in Romans chapter 9 in any way, shape, or form the way that I view Romans chapter 9. And then I give some other examples there and and you can read that. But look at that last paragraph. Another important point is God's predestination, His choosing, and His election is based upon His foreknowledge of who will choose Him. We're predestined according to the foreknowledge of God. God knows who will choose and who will reject Him. And also, we are chosen in Christ. Hence, all those who are in Christ, who have received Christ, are part of the elect. So I just wanted to add that in there. Since it wasn't in chapter 9, I decided to add it after chapter 9. Yes, I always have to have a little footnote. Romans chapter 10. We can do Romans chapter 10 real quick because Romans chapter 11 we'll spend more time on. Romans chapter 10, uh, he starts out, Paul starts out with another lament, so to speak. Uh, He says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Again, there are Israelites, ethnic Israel, who are not saved. They are not part of God's covenant people. Paul makes that clear. My prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. Christ is the end or the culmination of the law, so that there may be uh, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. He's saying Israel has a zeal of God, but they're ignorant of his righteousness. For they're still trying to attain their own righteousness by keeping the law. And all they have to do is receive the righteousness that comes by faith. Of Jesus Christ. So, chapter one, or verses one through four, uh, the lament we just read, verses five through thirteen, Paul quotes Leviticus eighteen five and Deuteronomy thirty. Paul is using the Old Testament scriptures to preach Christ, since the Old Testament anticipated the fulfillment of Messiah or fulfillment through Messiah. Um, and I, I do want to read that. Uh, well, first of all, let's go go with me real quick to Deuteronomy thirty. Deuteronomy thirty. That's Way back on the other end of the Bible. Deuteronomy 30. And I'll just say Romans 19 and 11 are filled with Old Testament references. Filled with them. Deuteronomy 30. Uh, 
verse number 11. This is in context of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God made with them, where they were to keep and obey if they wanted to, to be blessed as a nation. Verse 11 says, Deuteronomy 30, 11, Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love the Lord God, to walk in obedience to Him, and to keep His commandments, decrees, and laws. So there you see how the word that He gives them, that the word is not the word of the commandments of God are not too far away where you can't reach them, but they are here for you to hear it and obey it. And when you hear it and obey it and keep the commandments and laws, you will prosper. Now, Paul takes that and he puts a little twist and a spin on it when he comes to Romans chapter 10. So in Romans chapter 10, verse number 5, Romans chapter 10, verse number 5, Paul says this, Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live in them. That's another quote that he uses there from Leviticus. So the one who does the things of the law will live in them. But the righteousness that is of faith, so he's using what Moses said about the law and bringing it over, relating it to the righteousness of faith. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. He says, don't say today to the Jewish people, don't say who will ascend into heaven because Christ has already came. That would be to try to bring Messiah down again and he's already come. Or say in your heart, who will ascend up into heaven or who will descend to the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So he's telling those Jews, don't today say, well, who will ascend into the deep? Because Christ has already been and he's already resurrected. So you don't have to bring Messiah up from the dead. He's already come from the dead. He says, but what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. And if you do... Uh, hold on one second. So again, he's using Deuteronomy, but he leaves out something important. This is amazing how Paul does this. If you remember when we read Deuteronomy, he said, don't say, you know, who will go across and get it to us that we may hear it and obey it. He says that three times, that we may hear it and obey it, hear it and obey it, hear it and obey it. And the conclusion was, I've set before you this day life and death, prosperity and, and poverty. If you obey it and keep all the commandments, you will live. Paul doesn't talk about obeying commandments. He talks about the hearing of faith. So the conclusion in Deuteronomy was, do it and keep all the commandments and laws and obey it. The conclusion here, Paul says, is if you declare with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That salvation comes not by law keeping through Moses, but by the gospel and faith through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, Verses 14 through 17, um, this message needs to be proclaimed into all the world so that people will hear this message and receive it because they can't receive it unless they hear it. And then in verse 18 through 21, Paul anticipates arguments for Israel's rejection of the gospel. Some people say, well, maybe Israel hasn't heard. 
And he says, yes, they have. He says, well, maybe they didn't understand. And he says, yes, they did. Uh, so he anticipates arguments coming through the rest of the chapter. But the important part of chapter 10 is the hearing of the word of faith. The hearing of the word of faith. Which brings about chapter 11. Chapter 11 is another loaded chapter. Let me check my time. Oh, 10 o'clock. It's great. Still got another hour and a half to go. We're, I just switched the central time zone. <laughs> Romans chapter 11. So going back and looking at some of our major points um, or major issues, the issue of predestination and election, that's not about individuals. I do not believe that God has pre-selected those who will go to heaven and pre-selected those who will go to hell and nobody has a choice in the matter. I don't believe that. I believe predestination and election has to do with God working out His will through, through individuals, but to bring about salvation to Jews and salvation to Gentiles to include them into the covenant. The issue of the true Israel. I believe the true Israel are those of faith, not those of flesh. Paul says they are not all of Israel. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Not everyone who's an ethnic Jew has faith because Paul's desire was that they may be saved and become a part of of the covenant people of God. The issue of God's faithfulness. Has God's word failed? No, God's word has not failed. God has proven faithful to his word to Jews and to Gentiles. Now, the fourth issue is the salvation of Israel. Romans chapter 11. This chapter takes up the very tough subject of whether God has permanently rejected Israel or set them aside to work through Gentiles or stop fulfilling his promises, whether many of them have rejected God, but the issue is, has God totally rejected them? Despite appearances, God has not cast off his ancient people. Many have stumbled but have not altogether fallen. This is seen through the concept of the remnant. Paul argues that God's new covenant includes both Jew and Gentiles, and God's faithfulness has always been in saving a remnant in Israel. So chapter 11, verse 1, let's see how this chapter begins. So chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? That's the question. Did God reject his people? And he answers, by no means. Now, on what basis does Paul say, by no means has God rejected his people Israel? The means is himself. He continues to say in verse 1, by no means, I am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, and I am saved and righteous through Jesus. So God has not rejected his people because I'm one of his people and I'm standing here in front of you today as part of the covenant people of God. He said God did not reject his people that he foreknew. So begins with the question, because of Israel's rejection of the gospel, has God rejected them? And Paul immediately answers no and cites himself as proof. Now, let me just say this, nationally, nationally, yes, there was a rejection. Jesus tells us this several times in the parable of the vineyard. Jesus tells those in Israel, the kingdom will be taken from you 
and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. So nationally, yes, the kingdom was taken from Israel. Yes, he did look at national Israel and tell them, your house is left unto you desolate and judgment will come upon you. Nationally, yes, there was a rejection. But did God leave His people helpless? No. Because the gospel was to the Jew first. And God was working His plan to, in, to keep His covenant people and to include those of the Gentiles. So, for this purpose, because Paul's heart is for the Israelites... Paul's heart is for Israel after the flesh. Did God reject them? No, because Paul says, I'm proof of that. And he bases this upon the example of Elijah. Uh, but let me just read the, kind of the inset under Romans 11.1. 1. However, the question is, who are the people that God has not rejected? Is it all of ethnic Israel as in every single person? who was a naturally born Jew? No, because Paul has already told us that not all are part of Israel who were descended from Israel. So to answer this question, Paul uses Elijah. And he says in verse number uh, two, did God reject his people whom he foreknew? Don't you know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left. Elijah says, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And God answered him, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at this, that's what he said. He says, so too at this present time, Paul writes, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace it can't be on works, and if it were grace, it would no longer be grace. So, Elijah was thought to be alone, but yet God had saved a remnant of 7,000. So Paul says, just like then, right now, God has for himself an elect remnant of Israel, chosen and elected by his grace. Paul is clear that the majority of Israel failed to obtain the promise. But the elect remnant of Israel, the true Israel, did obtain the promise. Look in verse number 7 of Romans chapter 11. Chapter 7 says, What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. He says the majority of them, they did not obtain it. But the elect among them did. And the others were hardened. So we say in Israel, ethnic Israel, national Israel, you had those who rejected the gospel and they did not obtain God's promises. They forfeited God's promises. But the elect remnant that believed and had faith, they were the recipients of the promises. And they are the true Israel and the people of God. And the other's hearts were hardened. That is so important to understand. And it's because of their hardness, it's because of their rejection, that the Gentiles were able to come in in the first place. Their stumbling led to the full inclusion of the Gentiles. But this would do something. When many of Israel rejected, 
the gospel? And their hearts were hardened? The elect were were saved? The Gentiles were included. Through the hardening of Israel, the Gentiles were brought in. But now when some of those that were still hardened saw the Gentiles come in, guess what it made them? made them jealous. It made them jealous. So verse number 11 of chapter 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so that they fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation came to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. To make Israel envious. If their transgression means the riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles in so much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Paul says, here's the deal. The majority of Israel rejected Jesus. There is a faithful remnant of ethnic Jews in which I am one. The rest were hardened, but yet they were hardened so that the Gentiles could come in. But when the Gentiles come in, they will see it and it will provoke them to jealousy that some may be saved and come and be a part of the remnant. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, so by their transgression, the Gentiles come in, but the Gentiles come in was to provoke them to jealousy that will lead other Jews to salvation. And he gives the example of an olive tree. And this is a very important illustration. In verse number 17, he says, if some of the branches of this olive tree were broken off, and you, Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the root. There's a picture here. There's a picture of an olive tree. And the olive tree is symbolic of the covenant people of God, which was made up of ancient old covenant Israel, God's people. He says at this time, some of the branches of that olive tree were broken off because they did not believe. So some were broken off. That means they are no longer a part of God's covenant people because they did not believe. They go to obtain their own righteousness. They haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. But then he says, you Jew, you, you Gentiles, you're a little wild olive tree over here. And you have been grafted into this one olive tree. And you both take part of the nourishing root. What's the nourishing root? Well, he doesn't tell us. I believe the nourishing root is the Old Testament foundation and promises. The Abrahamic covenant where God promised Abraham through you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So there's one olive tree. The unbelieving branches of Israel were broken off. The believing Gentiles were grafted in, but there's still only one olive tree. Because there's a whole majority of teaching out there that claims that there are two separate covenant peoples of gods with two separate covenants today, the Jews and the church. Romans doesn't teach that. Ephesians doesn't teach that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, teach that he made of two one 
He made of two one covenant people. So it's important to know there is one olive tree. The wild olive tree is the Gentile nations who would be grafted in to the true believing remnant of Israel to be the one people of God. That's the beautiful picture he paints. But then he warns the Gentiles. He says, I don't think because salvation's come to the Gentiles that you are somehow more superior than the Jewish people. And he warns them and he tells them, if some of those unbelieving branches, if they come to faith, if they're provoked by jealousy and they come to faith, they're grafted back in as well. He says, it's not you that stand alone, but you stand with this one root of the promises that God made to Israel through His covenant to Abraham. So He warns them about having an arrogant attitude toward the branches and that the unbelieving Jews will be grafted back in when they come to faith. And He tells them in verse number 25 through verse number 29, and this is also a very controversial and hotly debated passage of Scripture he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may be conceited. Again, he's talking about don't have this arrogant attitude, thinking now I'm better than the Jews, because you both stand by faith. And they were cut off, but they can be grafted back in. And not because you're a Gentile are you automatically in, and your unbelief, you'll be excluded as well. So he shares this mystery of the Jew and Gentiles, covenant people of God together. And how God brings that to pass by saving all Israel. All Israel. Now, this is a controversial passage, 25 through 29. I'm going to read it in the NIV. I don't like the reading of the NIV in this passage. I think it shows a slant toward a certain pre-idea that most others do not show. But anyway, I'll read it. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, verse 25, of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a partial hardening until, NIV says, the full number of the Gentiles have come in. Um, ESV, I like the way ESV reads it. I don't know if I have it up. I thought I did. But most others says, till the fullness of the Gentile. The fullness of the Gentile, that same phrase was used previously in verse 12 about the full inclusion not about every individual. Again, we're not talking individual, we're talking people groups. The full inclusion of the Gentiles. Because of the hardening of Israel, the full inclusion of the Gentiles came in. Because of the hardening of Israel, part of Israel, the Gentiles were included. And he says, the Gentiles come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now that brings up several questions. That's been hotly debated over the past hundreds of years. What is all Israel? Is all Israel every individual ethnic Jew ever? Is all Israel Jew and Gentile made up of one people as Paul has defined Israel previously? Um, How are we to interpret this controversial passage? First, we have to remember to take the passage and interpret it as a whole. Not just one or two verses set apart from the previous verses. The problem is when you take three verses and build a whole doctrine out of it. You can make three verses manipulate and say whatever you want to and read into it things that aren't there. I think that's happened here at times. So we have to interpret it in the whole passage. We have to interpret it by who Paul says Israel is. 
because they are not all Israel who are of Israel. We have to interpret it uh, by who he says the one olive tree people of God are. So we have to interpret it as a whole. 25 and 27, Paul, again, he's still exhorting them not to be arrogant toward the branches. And he says that part of Israel was hardened. Again, remember, he says, the remnant received the promises. The other part of Israel was hardened. But they were hardened so that the Gentiles could come in. And when the Gentiles come in, it would provoke them to jealousy. He says, so Paul is still exhorting, or I say Paul is still exhorting them not to be arrogant. He says, part of Israel was hardened until the full inclusion of the Gentiles, which would provoke those who were hardened to jealousy, and some would come to Christ and be saved. And in this, in this way, this is how God would save Israel. This is how God would save the faithful remnant and bring salvation to all of the elect Israel that was elect according to grace. Thus, all Israel, the believing Jews and the Gentiles grafted in, would be saved. In my opinion, all Israel doesn't mean every single individual ethnic Jew. We're already told that not all ethnic Jews are part of Israel, but the faithful remnant is Israel. Verses 28 and 29. Some Jews, however, were still hardened, and they were still enemies of the gospel. But those who were broken off could still come back and be grafted in. So there is still a chosen remnant by grace because the promises of God are irrevocable. And they are fulfilled in this remnant that have obtained the promises. So to me, it's very simple. Part of Israel received the promises of God. They believed by faith. Part of Israel was hardened. When they were hardened, the Gentiles came in. When the Gentiles came in, those that were hardened would see and be provoked to jealousy. And many would come to salvation. And that's the way God chose to bring salvation to Israel as well as include the Gentiles as the one people of God. But there were some that were still hardened. They were still viewed as enemies. But yet, they would be grafted back in when they come to faith. That's how I see the passage. I, and I put down here because, again, I said there's controversy. There's many different ideas. And I understand where those ideas come from. I put some use this passage of Scripture to show a yet future total salvation of ethnic Israel. That a time in the future when all the individual number of Gentiles, as the NIV reads, who will be saved are saved, then God's done with Gentiles, and then all of ethnic Israel will turn to Christ. Some people see that scenario being played out. Personally, I understand it. I think that's reading a little too much into what is being said here. Um... But yet that is, you know, a very popular belief out there. But I think you have to take the whole passage. How does God bring salvation to Israel? Again, God brings salvation to Israel by the elect remnant coming to faith. The others were hardened. They were hardened to bring the Gentiles in. When the Gentiles came in, it provoked them to jealousy. And when they were provoked to jealousy, many of them came to Christ. And that's the way God brings salvation to Israel. And that's the way God includes the Gentiles. And that's the way he establishes the one people of God. Simple. And then he ends in verse 30 and 32. And I want to read to the end of the chapter and then we'll close up. Verse 30. Just as you were one time disobedient. You were one time disobedient to God. Gentiles, you have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. 
so too they have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. That's just what I've been saying. For God has bound everyone under disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. And he quotes all the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been given as counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I want you to get this picture. He begins chapter 9 with a lament. He begins chapter 9 by saying, I have great sorrow in my heart. He begins chapter 10 with my desire and prayers that Israel should be saved. He, in verse 11, he says, has God rejected his people? And he has a little bit of hope by saying, no, God hasn't rejected his people. But through the rejection of his people, God has brought in the Gentiles in order to provoke his people to jealousy. He begins with lament, but yet he ends with praise. He ends with God showing mercy on both Jew and Gentile. And His mercy and His salvation being available to all. That there is no one that has been excluded. There is no one that He has rejected. There is no one that He has says, you are locked on the outside and cannot come in. To me, this goes against the, the Calvinist predestination. That there is no one, He's concluded all under disobedience, that He would show His mercy and salvation to all. And for this, He gives praise unto God because of God's mercy and because of God's faith faithfulness to his word, not rejecting or leaving any behind, but yet showing his mercy and inviting all that whosoever may will would come in. And he gives praise unto God in this wonderful doxology, as he says, for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory and honor forever. What begins in laments ends in praise because God has opened the way for Jew and Gentile together to receive His mercy. To receive His mercy. There's so much in these chapters. But yet it all leads to somehow in God's mind, and God's plan and purposes, He works His purposes out to bring His salvation to people who are undeserving, to bring His salvation to people who were once disobedient, to bring His salvation to Jew and Gentile, to bring His salvation to you and to me, that we can all share together in his purposes and his promises.